Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus for understanding the words of our Messiah. We ask you, Lord, to give us an attentive mind and spirit to what you're saying. We humble ourselves and we say, God, unless you breathe on our minds, we cannot do this. We ask you for grace in our weakness. Would you count this as love even tonight, God? Grace in our weakness to come to your word, to come to your word, to submit to it. Lord, we ask you for grace now in the name of Jesus. Amen. The main passages that we're going to be looking at come from Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and then some parallels in Matthew 10, Luke 17, and Luke 12. Between these six passages, the vast majority, the, the vast majority of the content related to the, the signs that the teaching that Jesus gives in the Gospels on the, uh, the end of the age and the last generation are in these passages. And so we're going to take these and compare them. How many of you believe that Matthew's inspired by God? Obviously. What about Luke? What about Mark? How many of you would say you're, you're more familiar with one than you are the other? Most of the time. Matthew, why? Because it's first? That is exact. Let's just be honest. Matthew's first. We get through Matthew. We're like, oh, they all say the same thing in the parallels. I'm going to stick in Matthew. We've all done that. We've all done that. But God has given us multiple witnesses and so that we can search them out. And we can draw out the meaning for, of what he's saying as we compare and contrast the, the phrases that he, he, he gives in each one of them. And there's sometimes a little difference in the way things are said that brings a lot of insight into the passage. So we're going to look at and, and, and compare those, uh, those parallels. One preliminary note. Luke is the only Gentile author of, of one of the books of the Bible. You guys, did you guys know that? Luke is the only, the only one who God used to write a book of the Bible that's a Gentile. He went with, that's right, Luke and Acts. He wrote those two books. And uh, the, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Paul, we're, we're talking about Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Paul is the... Paul is the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. Luke was traveling with him. So Luke as a Gentile and Paul with a sensitivity to the Gentile world, wanting to translate ideas to them, a lot to the Gentiles. When we get, there's several places in Luke where Luke's, uh, how do I put it here? Luke is often thought to be con- concerned with chronological order and detail. Luke is by far, well, he's, in most places, it seems that Luke is more concerned with more chronological order and detail than some of the other Gospels. He's a historian. He's got a lot more dates and names. Yeah, he's, he's a, he's a, a, gen, he's a gen, I, I don't know exactly what his nationality was, but he's definitely a Gentile. Also, like we were saying, Luke accompanied Paul in his mission to the Gentiles. In numerous places, Luke's Gospel seems to be concerned with translating concepts for a Gentile audience. Things like the abomination of desolation. If you're a Gentile, what in the world are you talking about? You know, if, you, if you're reading Daniel for the first time. 
There are several places, not just there, but in a number of places where Luke seems to be translating concepts in terms that Gentiles would be able to understand within their worldview. That's just the same thing we all do, right, when we go cross-culturally. So let's keep that in mind that Luke, when we think of Luke, we think a little more concerned with chronology and translating ideas. So let's read Matthew 21, 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. What buildings? Of the temple. And if there's any doubt about what we're talking about here, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They're clearly coming. The context is they're actually coming out and they're looking at the first century temple that existed in their day. I know this is stating the obvious. It's stating the obvious. But we're stating the obvious because a lot of times the obvious gets ignored in the interpretation. We're going to, as we'll see in here in just a minute. Okay? They're looking at the temple. Jesus says, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone on another. There will not be left here one stone on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus is saying, this building that you see here is going to be destroyed. It's going to be thrown down. Do you see these great buildings? Matthew, Mark 13, 2, Luke 21, 6. As for these things that you see, not um, the days will come when there will not be one stone left upon another. All will be thrown down. So Jesus is clearly prophesying the destruction of the first century temple that they were observing with their own eyes. Yay or nay? Absolutely. This temple, along with the city of Jerusalem, was in fact destroyed by the Roman armies led by the future emperor Titus in 70 AD. And it was a brutal destruction. It was a brutal destruction. You read Josephus, it was brutal. Okay? Now we're pointing this out because Jesus is prophesying about the, the destruction of... Yes, sir. If you, if you look at like what Josephus says, the, the Roman armies that destroyed... The temple were not actually ordered by Rome. They were Arab nations that were underneath Rome. Right. And they did it of their own volition. Right. Because they hated Jerusalem. Right. They hated the Jews. So it wasn't an order that came down from the emperor or from the generals in Rome, but it was Arab nations who, that who, willingly. Had, who had Roman titles, but they were Arabs that destroyed right. the temple. Right. That's a good point. <clears throat> and so the reason I'm pointing this out is because <clears throat> they're actually asking him about the building they're looking at with their own eyes. And sometimes, how many of you, how many of you have heard some of the different categories of uh, schools of interpretation? Futurist? Preterist? Who's heard of preterist? Preterism is mostly a heresy, <laughs> to be honest. They, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, a lot of it's pretty horrible, especially the way that the book of Revelation gets completely butchered. But basically, preter, they're still, they, the preterists are really strong on history. And I like history. I studied some history in, in college. 
And what they, basically, they, they take all of the events of Matthew 24 most of the time and apply all of them to the destruction of the temple. Okay? And so even the second coming of Jesus applies to the destruction of the temple. They spiritualize everything. And, but on the other hand, futurists, they'll sometimes take Matthew 24 and apply everything to the future as if they didn't actually ask about the destruction of the temple. See what I'm saying? They just take Matthew 24 and say, oh, it's all about the last generation. And they completely ignore the fact that they actually asked them about that building that they were actually looking at. See what I'm saying? So we want to actually say, well, what is Jesus actually saying? Right? <laughs> That's what we want to know. And so let's keep going. Matthew 24, 3. I don't want to, well, preterism on the whole, it's, it, to de- it, it denies the second coming as an actual bodily return of Jesus. That's why I said it's a heresy. That's obviously a heresy. You know, there's a lot of guys that probably may love the Lord, probably love the Lord in that camp, but and they, a lot of them have some good insights on some historical things. So I want to validate and honor them for that. But to deny the second, to say that the parousia of Jesus is the destruction of the temple is absolute craziness. It's, it's Jesus coming back bodily. Uh, Matthew 24, 3. Okay, flip over your page there. I, the, the notes are a little off, I think, so you just have to. This is page 2. Yeah, you can flip it. Flip it. Okay. So now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and John, James and John and Andrew asked him. So these are, uh, Mark clarifies who the actual ones were. It's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And then the, in, in Luke, uh, at the end of Luke, in Luke, they, he puts it kind of towards the end just to, as a general comment on the context that he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite, um, Oh, sorry. The Mount of all, uh, and he every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the Mount of called Olives. So Luke, they're they're clearly all talking about the same thing. These passages all go together, same content, a lot of the same language, and they all go together. <clears throat> Let's go to, uh, yeah, the commentary. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. As we saw in the last session, the Mount of Olives is a very significant mountain in the eschatological consciousness. Oh, that sounds fancy, doesn't it? The end times mindset, end signs paradigm, whatever, of the Jews. It's where the Messiah comes back. Let's look at it. Zechariah 14 there. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two. You'll flee through the Mount of Olives, or you'll you'll flee um, through the, the valley there. As you fled in the days of the earthquake, then the Lord my God will come, the holy ones with him. This is clearly in times. There's absolutely no doubt that this is an end times passage. The Messiah coming back and the Mount of Olives is split in two. When his feet stand on and his on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's why all these false messiahs were calling people to the Mount of Olives that we read about in Josephus in the last session. They're claiming that I'm the Messiah and most good false messiah if they have any understanding of the scriptures at all they're going to have the mount of olives on their radar <laughs> that's a good question yeah they, they got slaughtered before they could do it so so let's just remember the context they're sitting on a very eschatologically significant mountain sitting opposite the actual temple in the first century, that Jesus said was going to be destroyed. 
They're looking at the temple, and they're sitting on an eschatological mountain. They're thinking eschatology, and they're thinking the temple's destruction. Both things are going through their minds, okay? Tell us, they said, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, when will these things, Matthew, Mark 13, 4, tell us when will these things, referring to the temple's destruction, clearly, when will these things, Jesus prophesies, when will the temple be destroyed? When will these things take place? When will these things, when will these things be, these things that are about to take place? Now, Matthew also adds, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? There's, they specifically ask him for three categories of sign. Take note of that. Three categories. Category one. What are the signs that are going to give us a clue that the temple will be destroyed, that these things are about to happen? Number two, what is the sign of your parousia, of your coming in the clouds? What, when, you're, when you're about to come through the sky in glory, more specifically towards the very end, what is the sign that we know you're, oh, you're, you're here, you're breaking in, that you're, your coming is upon us now? like in a very immediate sense. And category three, what are the signs that we've entered the end of the age, the close of the age? There's three categories of signs that they ask him for. Yes, sir. I think they're different. I think one will, what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? It sounds it sounds, it sounds like they're, they're separate. And I think that as we go through, we'll see that I think they are. They definitely go together, obviously, in sequence, because the close of the age culminates in the final ones. But he's saying, what are the, what's that unique one that's going to be surround your coming? We're going to look at that. Now, it's extremely important that they, kn- they know that as part of their question, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask Jesus concerning three clear categories of signs. One, Signs that will signal the impending destruction of the temple. Two, signs that will signal when the earth has entered into the final generation at the end of the age. Three, the sign that will accompany his parousia or his coming from the sky. More specifically, futurists tend to sweep category one under the rug in their interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. Okay? Preterists usually do the same with categories two and three. However, the disciples want to know when all these things will take place. The apostles knew the scriptures well. Okay, we need to uh, interpret the scripture as if the apostles were not dumb. That's the way we interpret the scriptures a lot of the times. These were the men chosen by Jesus to take the gospel to the nations. We have to trust their testimony. These guys knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures well, and they knew what they were asking. Jesus also is an amazing rabbi. He is not, they ask him for three categories of signs. We should expect him to teach on what in, the, in his answer? Three categories of signs. And lo and behold, when we look closely at the text, we find all three clearly laid out and taught. Okay? They, is, they ask him for insight concerning three categories of signs, and that's what, that's what we, we, we find. We should expect him to address all three. As we continue then, we must keep in mind that the disciples asked Jesus concerning both the end of the temple and the end of the age. Also, Mark's language of accomplished, fulfilled, gives the sense that they expected the signs would take place in fulfillment of Scripture. All three categories, 
And that's what we'll find as we work through. That's why we work through all those scriptures. We work through 35 some pages of notes so that we could understand what was going on in their minds. Okay. As we continue, or where is it? In, in other words, their questions, were, their questions were rooted in their understanding of the Old Testament. All three categories of signs, therefore, should have their anchor in the Old Testament. And this is, in fact, the case, as we will see. So Matthew 24, 4. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. This, again, is language typically applied to false prophets, especially in the Old Testament. Jesus is warning his disciples to actively watch out lest they be deceived and led astray. 24.5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. This is where if you skip Luke, we miss a lot. Let's go to Luke. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, i.e. the Messiah, and the time is at hand. This is Luke 17. This is Luke 17 again. You guys remember we went through that whole thing with Luke 17? Don't go out to them because my coming is coming at the end of the age through the sky and power. They're false messianic movements. Don't, don't go out to them in the desert. I'm coming to you. The kingdom of God comes into your midst collectively in power from above, not through the activity and power and strength of men. Many will come to my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. They're trying to draw disciples after themselves, draw them to their false messianic agenda. Okay, we read those examples in Josephus. Here we come to the nature of the deception. One, there's a deception of identity. To advance their agenda, many Jews would presumptuously take upon themselves the messianic title that only rightfully belongs to Jesus. The fact that Jesus is talking about um, yeah, Matthew makes it clear that the name here does not refer to Jesus' personal name, but his messianic title, okay, given to him. You know, uh, you can look to Luke 2.11. He's the Christ. Dece- uh, number two, deception of message, the content of the message. The time for the messianic kingdom's establishment is about to be established through their revolt and human power, and you might add, in this generation, in other words, the first century, that's they're going to be their claim is now in our generation, it's the time. The kingdom's established. I'm the Messiah. Pick up your sword. Join me in the desert. We're going to overthrow Rome. Okay? Jesus is here addressing the same issue that he addressed in Luke 17. And again, see the, the, the notes in part one. And then deception of motive. The motive driving these false messiahs was to take advantage of the messianic hopes of the people lead them to the desert in rebellion against Rome, rally them to their own man-based agendas in the name of God. They were doing Al-Qaeda stuff. They were doing some of the stuff that we do in our churches, taking advantage of the hopes to draw people to ourselves to build our own ministries. I mean, the human heart is the same, whatever we do, okay? See quotations uh, of Josephus from part one for examples. <laughs> okay, see, we worked through all those quotations of Josephus, now we don't have to. Jesus says, do not go after them, because in reality, the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom awaits a future generation. Before this generation comes, the true, the true Messiah, Jesus, must first suffer in this generation. He says it clearly in Luke 17. Okay, Mark, Matthew 24, 6. 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Mark thirteen seven. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. The Greek is telos there, and it's significant. Luke 21, 9. And when you hear of wars and tumults, or now this word tumults here, look at the other translations. The, the sense is clearly revolution, insurrection, rebellion. Wars, tumults, or wars and revolutions, wars and commotions, disturbances, insurrections, the net Bible rebellions. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now here's the question. Remember, they ask him for three categories of signs. The end of the temple, as well as the end of the age. So we have to have discernment. Which one's he talking about here? Let's read the no, Let's look at the commentary. Luke makes it clear that, quote, wars and rumors of wars refers to first century insurrectionist movements whose aim was to cast off the yoke of Roman oppression. The big question here is, what is Jesus referring to when he says the end is not yet or will not be at once? Is he referring to the end of the temple as the consequence of the insurrections? Or is he saying, in this generation you will see insurrections, but the end of the age still awaits a future generation? I think you could, both of them you could kind of tweak with, but the point is the same, that he's saying that before the temple's destruction, you're going to see ins- there's going to be a growing number of insurrections, and that hap- that's very, very historically verifiable. That's exact- there was a growing insurrections everywhere leading up to the temple's destruction, And it went all the way through. Absolutely. It's, he's, saying, he's saying that you're going to hear wars, wars and tumults, rumors of wars, of resurrections growing, insur- excuse me, resurrections, insurrections. You're going to hear of more and more rising in the land, more and more resurrections. That would be pretty interesting. More and more insurrections. And you're going to hear of more and more, but know that there's still going to be some time before they actually re- their full fruition results in the destruction of the temple or it could mean you're going to hear of th- this generation there's going to be all these re- insurrections but the end still awaits the end of the age um, but let's let's go um, Matthew 24 3 the word used for end of the age is scintillia um, for end what I mean the word for end in the New Testament, it is used six times. All this I'm talking about in Matthew 24, 3, when he says, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The word he uses there is scintillia. In the New Testament, it is used six times, almost always with maybe a, an arguable uh, possibility, uh, one possible exception. It's almost always in reference to the end of the age and the second coming, along with one possible exception in Hebrews 9. So remember the, 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 the parable of the wheat and the tares, when he says that he'll send his angels out at the end of the age? Clearly, that parable is referring to the end of the age, the consummation of the age. That's the same phrase that he uses here in Matthew 24, 3. It has the sense of completion and consummation, okay? That when this age has reached its full consummation and everything is wrapped up, then it's, you see what I'm saying? That's the sense that this word has. Now, the word used in this verse, for this must take place, but the end is not yet, it's telos. Telos has a much broader range of meaning, and so that's where we, we need to use some discretion with translation. It, it, telos, can mean, it, means, it can mean an end. 
It can mean end in the sense of a completion. It can mean the end in the sense of a goal. My desired end, my desired goal is. It can mean the end of something in the sense of a purpose. Okay? And so let's look at it. It can mean an end, a toll. Um, where is it? Page, page five. Custom, customs end. It can mean an outcome, a fulfillment, a goal, a sum. Um, and so to what end are you doing this? To what outcome? Or what will the end of this be? What will be the result of this? See the different senses? Or when will this come to an end? When will it come to a completion? So it has a broad range of meaning. So <clears throat> um, what, here's an interesting note in the Strong's. He says... Uh, it's referring uh, in a termination, the limit at which a thing ceases to be always the end of some act or state, but not necessarily the end of a period of time. That's an interesting piece of information. If we're asking what about the end of the age, which is a time word. So are we asking about the end of the temple or the end of the age? So this if, if, if strong uh, concordance is accurate on this then it favors that he's talking about the end of the temple. Now let's look at, uh, here's an alternative translation here. For it is time, oh, uh, this is First Peter 4.17 in the NIV. It's time for judgment to begin with the, the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be, the result be, the telos, the, fa- in the net Bible says fate, be for those who don't obey the gospel. So, when you hear, this is a possible alternative translation of Luke 21.9. When you hear of wars and insurrections in the land of Israel, by these false, led by these false messiahs and prophets, do not be terrified, don't be alarmed. For these things, i.e. the wars and insurrections, must first take place. But the telos, the outcome, i.e. of those wars and insurrections, which is the temple's destruction, will not be at once. It's, you're going to hear it more and more and more, but it's still a few years off. Now, Jesus is giving this in, you know, around 30, 30 something A.D. The war, the temple wasn't destroyed for 40 more years. OK, that's a good period of time. So I, I tend to favor that one because of the context and because of Strong's because of Strong's uh, point here that if you're focusing on a period of time, telos usually isn't the word used. See what I'm saying? It's usually I want to finish my race. I want to I want it's it's got the sense of I'm running a race and I want to I want to go to the end. I want to finish the race. It's not necessarily connected to time there. Does that make sense? Okay. So <clears throat> this translation favors the te- destruction of the temple. The others could go either way. But really either one on this um you you could go with it either way. I tend to favor this one. But the point is that he's still focusing the wars and rumors of wars and the insurrections. I, I, really, I really believe he's still focusing on those insurrectionist movements. And he's, remember, because they asked him, what will be the signs leading up to the temple's destruction? Now, Luke, remember, he's the chronological guy, Luke 21.10. Then he said to them, now I, I put this here because it, may, it seems like Luke may be indicating a shift in thought. And so we're going to let the next couple verses see if they're going to provide us any evidence for whether this is just he's just kind of continuing or whether he's actually shifting the thought to another category of the signs. Matthew 24, 7. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Mark 13, 8. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. 
<clears throat> nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now look at Isaiah 19.2. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian, brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. This is the only other place, this is the only place in the Old Testament where this phrase, this exact phrase, kingdom against kingdom, is actually used. It's the only place. Now, uh, it's also found in Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19 is clearly an end times passage. Some verses relate to events leading up to the Messiah's return, and others apply to after his return. But it's clearly eschatological. It's clearly end of the age and some post-second post coming. Interestingly, the broader context of Isaiah 13 through 24, remember we looked at both of those passages, relates to the turbulent situation of many Gentile nations in the Middle East leading up to Israel's deliverance at the second coming. Isn't that interesting? And Isaiah 24 describes the Lord rearranging the earth's topography through earthquakes and other various disasters. Makes me think that he's got that section of scripture in his mind when he's teaching about this. Remember, shorthand references that recall all those passages. That's why we went through so much trouble to work through those. Now, let's keep going. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Mark says there will be earthquakes in various places. Now, look what Luke says. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines. Luke adds plagues or pestilences. Interesting. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now, remember Luke 17, they're looking for the signs in their generation. But when do the signs that mark the day of the Lord come? The final generation. So here he's associating the great signs. So I, uh, let's, well, which he wouldn't necessarily, he already said it's not happening in their generation. So here we have at least five reasons to conclude that in Luke 21.10a above, Jesus was in fact shifting the discussion away from signs leading up to the temple's destruction to signs signaling that the earth has entered into the last generation. He's talking about category, the next category. Okay? The category two now. The possible quotation from Isaiah 19, which is an eschatological passage. Number two, the shift from talking about insurrections on a localized level, a localized area of Israel, to shakings and earthquakes that will impact the entire world, such as Isaiah 24. Three, Luke's mention of pestilences or plagues evokes to mind passages like Psalm 91, which describes God's protection of the saints in the last days. Number four, Luke's remark about terrors and great signs from heaven is another indication that the last generation is in view here because of the Old Testament association of great signs in the heavens with the last days, day of the Lord. For example, Joel 2, Isaiah 13, see all of the Discourse Seminar 1. That's why we went through all of that, guys. Number five, Jesus' use of the... Oh, yeah, let's go to Matthew 24, 8. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. You guys remember we went through that whole talk about the birthing analogy? In context to what? The end of the age and the birthing of the age to come. Okay? That's their hope. So five, Jesus' use of the birth pains analogy, which as we saw in part one, refers to the end time shakings that ultimately give birth to the age to come. This, in my mind, is sufficient reason to think that, that in Luke 21.10, when he says, then he said to them, he's, he's shifting his thought 
he's, 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 he's initially talking about the wars and insurrections in the first century. He shifts his thoughts to start talking a little bit about signs at the end of the age. And then, um, let's go to the, let's see, page, what page are we on? Page seven? Page seven. Now, look, we got a huge timing indicator. But what? But before all this, but before all of these signs that will begin the beginning of birth pains. Yes, sir. Oh, oh, okay. I love you, Bryce. You're, you make me feel good. You're simply engaged. I'm like, oh, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, here Luke gives us an important time indicator. Jesus is now turning. You would miss this if you're just reading Matthew. You would miss this. Luke gives us an important time indicator. Jesus is now turning his attention back to the signs that will lead up to the temple's destruction. Before these signs, at the end of the age, before all of this that I just mentioned, the beginning of birth pains, let me, start, let me talk to you more about what's going to happen leading up to the temple's destruction. Jesus is now turning his attention back to signs that will lead up to the temple's destruction before the last generation and beginning of birth pains begin to unfold. Thus, this begins a parenthetical section, the before all this section. Remember, Jesus is addressing all three categories of signs. We can't just brush away the signs that lead to the temple's destruction. We can't brush away the other ones either. We want to we ask him to teach us on all three levels. So then, be on, Mark 13, be on your guard, beware of men, just brace yourselves. And here we go. Now, Mark 24, 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation or persecution to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations for, not, for my name's sake. <clears throat> Usually we apply this to the end of the age because we don't read the other parallels. Let's look at Mark and Luke, though. Be on your guard, for they will, hand, they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up where? to the synagogues and prisons, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. I don't think synagogues today really flog that much. Yes, sir. Because of, the, because of a mixture with Islam? You know, that, that could be possible. Um, I think that the most natural sense is the first century floggings, which we see all over the book of Acts. The, the, the 40 lashes minus, minus, how many times did Paul get the 40 minus one? How many times? I mean, that guy's a living embodiment of this, this thing. Here the, now, so here the focus is on the disciples of Jesus being handed over to be tried, persecuted, and flogged in the synagogues. This is, of course, what we see happening all over the book of Acts. The focus here is clearly the first century. The context of Matthew 10 which contains some of the exact content as parts of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, is clearly a pre-temple destruction focus. I'm just saying this parenthetical section is clearly pre-temple destruction. Matthew 23, remember, Jesus says, I'm going to send you guys, talking to the Jews there, apostles. I'm going to send you wise men. You're going to flog some of them. Some of them you're going to crucify. Crucifying doesn't really happen a lot today either, you know. But, you know, it might happen once in a while, but that was a Roman thing. Crucifixion was a Roman thing, mostly. And, and so once Paul and Peter and James, and the Jews, they killed, James, they killed all these guys, it was like, okay, I've sent you my apostles and preached the gospel to you. Now, 
the temple's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna wipe out the temple. I gave you guys your chance, and all of the the blood that's been shed since uh, from the the shedding of Zach, uh, how does it put it in Matthew 23 that something like yeah something like that. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's it's I think it just seems that way more to us because we're not as anchored in the Old Testament. And it would be kind of me like you, like if I knew you guys had all those chapters memorized and I'm teaching on something, you know, and then I want to highlight another passage. I'm just it's a natural flow going back and forth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Jesus was also Jewish and Greeks, not as linear. Greeks are, you know, the in West, you know, the Western world, you know, we're, we're, you know, and so that's why we're having to make sense of it because we're trying to make sense of it in our little weak Greek minds, you know. Right. That's why I think Luke, as a Gentile, is like, what's going on here? And in his account, he includes the time indicator because he researched it. Like, guys, I appreciate your Jewish style of teaching. But I'm a doctor, and I'm kind of, you know, what's going on here? Help me out, understand what Jesus is really saying here. And so he includes, but before all this. So that's, that's for me, you know. I have a feeling we're going to, Jesus, you know, and he has, he, Jesus, he's, a, he's got a personality. He's a teacher with a personality. Who knows, like, how he likes to cover topics. He might have a preferred teaching method. Uh, he's a good rabbi. So let's keep going. <clears throat> So you will stand before governors and kings. That, that little phrase, I want to tell you, Christiane, you're honest. That Luke 21, 12, it tweaked with me. It's tw- it tweaked with me for years. That phrase, I tried, I, I, I looked that phrase up in every which way, worked it over in the Greeks, every which way, and you can't get around it. Before all this, you know, it tweaked with me. And so, that, so that's where I really had to begin adjusting my, my interpretation of Matthew 24. Yeah, just wanted, I want to take it for what it says, for the timing stuff, for the timing stuff. And which content to apply to which category of signs. So let's keep going. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You'll bear, be brought before kings and governors for my sake. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And we see that all over the Acts, don't we? They're brought before the rulers of Israel they're brought before Gentile rulers, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Publius, ultimately before Caesar. Okay? That's what happened. Mark 13, 10. And this gospel must be first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, I'm going to tweak with a sacred cow in the missions movement. But let's keep going. Luke 21, 13. Let's not get there yet. We're going to start bashing at that sacred cow just a little bit here in a minute. Luke 21, 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You'll bear witness before them. Um, Jesus is saying that one of the major signs that will precede the temple's destruction is a witness to both Jew and Gentile, including kings and leaders, in context of great suffering and trial. So uh, Mark 13, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate before and how to answer. For I, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, will give you mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And I love how we get the whole Trinity in here when we look at all three Gospels. We got the Holy Spirit, 
focused on in Mark. We've got Jesus in Luke. Um, and then in Matthew 10, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak what you are or what you are to say. For you are for what you are to say, you will be given in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Isn't that cool? But the thing is, guys, Matthew 10, some of the exact phrases and exact language that's used in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. It, and in, in Matthew 10, it's the same language referring to the same things. And Matthew 10 is clearly a first century context. Jesus sends out the disciples to Israel. And he actually says, you're not going to finish going through them before the Son of Man comes. Now, that doesn't make any sense if you're talking about the second coming. But if you're talking about he will come with the, the Messiah, will destroy the temper, temple and the sanctuary with the prince who is coming. He's basically saying that you're not going to finish going through all the towns of Israel before I destroy the temple. That's what he's saying. So clearly, Matthew 10 is a first century context. And then, of course, here's an example, Stephen. They had wisdom that his adversaries could not contradict. So Matthew 24, 10. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Here's the great, now here, here's why I went into the whole thing with 2 Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 8. Because a lot of times it's assumed that when he talks about the apostasy in, Dan, in 2 Thessalonians 2, that he's talking about the same thing here as in Matthew 24, 10. Matthew 24.10 is actually drawing from Micah chapter 7. Go read Micah chapter 7, okay? Read Micah chapter 7, and that comes out clear in Matthew 10. I don't have that here. Go read Micah chapter 7. Matthew, the, the, the rebellion talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2 is drawn from Daniel 8, which clearly happens at the end of the age. We assume sometimes that the falling away and the rebellion and those two passages are the same, but they're not. Matthew, Matthew 24.10 is drawing from Micah 7. It's an allusion to it. <clears throat> Mark 13. You remember that? Brother against brother. Mother-in-law against brother-in-law. That's, that's Micah 7. And, and it's quoted verbatim in Matthew 10. Mark 13. So many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Mark 13.12. And brother will deliver brother over to, de- to death. So here we got Micah 7. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. So who's betraying who? Who's hating one another? It's parents hating their children. And that's exactly what happened. They were turning, like, remember the story in John 9. This was before Jesus rose from the dead. But their parents, they didn't want to be excommunicated from the synagogue while their son, who had been born blind, was healed. So they didn't want to get involved because they didn't want to get excommunicated. But though that kind of dynamic was common. Uh, Matthew 10, 21, brother will deliver brother to death. The father's child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Now, I have to find whether examples of examples. Yeah, it was brutal in, in terms of the general lawlessness in the land. And definitely in the book of Acts, we see people being persecuted and, and all, all that kinds of stuff. And and. Um, not, I don't think, I think I have to find some historical, I doubt all of the accounts, they all turned out like Stephen. Some probably were brought before the Sanhedrin even and denied their faith, I would imagine, you know, and, uh, but, <clears throat> so let's keep going. 
So when Matthew 24.10 is compared to the parallels, see, that's our problem, guys. We have to compare it. We have to compare it. Because we, don't take, we haven't given as much time to Mark and Luke often, we, we assume that it's referring to uh, a great apostasy, that it's referring specifically to an apostasy of believers leading up to the last three and a half years. Now, I think that there probably there will be that kind of reality going on based on other passages like Luke 18. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? That's clearly referring to the end of the age. I think you can make a good case on other passages for that kind of falling away and turning away from the faith and your love growing cold. But I want to know what the master is saying in this passage. And here he's talking about Micah 7. He's, a, he's referencing it. So when Matthew 24.10 is compared to the parallels, it's clear that Jesus is not talking here about the rebellion that occurs when the Antichrist is revealed, Daniel 8, 2 Thessalonians 2, or to some great apostasy of the church that happens before that event. The focus is on believing Jews in the first century being turned into the Sanhedrin to be imprisoned or put to death for their faith. Jesus is saying that some will buckle under, under the, uh, the pressure. I'm saying that this falling away is referring to the falling away referenced in Micah 7, where fathers are turning in their children and this and this. And Jesus actually says he's the cause of Micah 7. And that's happening. Yes, sir. He's drawing from Micah 7, actually, in that. So I can, I mean, if I'm, since I'm referencing, I'll just, I'll just open it up to Micah 7 and read it. What misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the harvest. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with, net, with a net. Read the account of the destruction of Jerusalem. Sedition, civil war, in the Jews killing Jews. It was crazy what was happening in the land at that time. This is all in Josephus. <clears throat> So um, don't trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend, even with her who lies in your embrace. Be careful of your words, for a son dishonors his father. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the members of his own household. Okay, and so go to chapter 10. Now, some of these dynamics will probably be happening at the end of the age, I'm sure. But I'm just, I want to, I want to, Jesus' application in Matthew 10 he says, he's reading it. So here he says, uh, brother will betray brother to death. Father, his child, children will bear, rebel against their parents and have them put to death. That's in chapter 10, verse 21. Then you get down to verse 34. Don't suppose, this is all still in the same context of the same discussion. Don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I, ha- for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be members of his own household. Quoting from Micah 7. Anyone who loves his father and mother, me more than, more, father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Clearly, he's talking about Jews because Gentiles, we already don't love our families. Jewish culture is a much... No... Jewish, Jewish culture, Jew, no, for real, that's, no, I'm, I'm saying that, but it's true. I'm saying that, G, this is what uh, one of my professors said, Charles Kraft. He said, you know, he says, Jesus wouldn't tell that to us because Gentiles were not as, uh, this is stereotypically, this is not true across the board, but Jews 
as a culture, they're very family-oriented. Muslims in the Middle East, as Middle Eastern cultures, they're very family-oriented. And to go against the family is an intense thing. Versus us in our individualistic culture, I mean, we're always ready to rebel against our parents anyway. You know what I'm saying? It's like that, that family bond. Jesus has to say, look, you have to love me more than your family. Family breakdown. In the, oh, the family breakdown. That's just crazy. Yeah. What you're saying, like you read stories of what was happening in the, in the Roman households and, and the leadership and just the intrigue and the deception, siblings killing each other. It was just horrible. But anyway, so that's, uh, I don't want to say that like Gentiles can't have good family. That's not the point. But I'm just saying that Jewish culture and Middle Eastern cultures are very family oriented. Family is, is very important to dishonor the family. is a huge thing. Can, ca- can cause death. Jesus is saying, you've got you've to love your fa- me more than your family. And in our culture, it's hard to identify when we've got so much family breakdown. We've got so much family breakdown. It's hard for us to understand that kind of statement. All right. <clears throat> so let's keep going. Then he continues in Matthew 24, 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Do we, we don't need to read Josephus again. Okay, we read that exact quote earlier. I just included it here for your reference. Matthew 24, 12 Because of lawlessness, and NIV says wickedness, King James says iniquity, will be increased. Now, keeping in context here, will be increased in the land between family members. The love of many will grow cold. See, this is where some of the Lord's been tweaking with my paradigms because this is almost always applied to the end of the age. But I believe Mark and Luke are just as inspired as Matthew. And if I believe that and I want to have integrity with the text, I've got to take this seriously and see what he means by this. He's saying that people, there's lawlessness, almost like, uh, is he referring to the Mosaic Law? That they're not, they're, they're not adhering to the stipulations of the Mosaic Law, so they're lawless? Because they, in, when the, temp, the siege of Jerusalem happened, the, these zealots took over and they started appointing priests that were not qualified biblically to serve as priests just because they, they thought they could. You had... You had people dressing as transvestites and homosexuality breaking out throughout the city. I mean, it's craziness. We're going to read some of those quotes, but let's read. Well, let's, yeah, let's read this one here. This is we didn't read through this one. The affairs of the Jews. This is Josephus. The affairs of the Jews were growing more troubled. The country was filled with robbers and false prophets fooling the people. Although Felix was successful in capturing and killing many of them, including the robber Eleazar. Felix hated the high priest Jonathan, who persisted in telling him how to run the country. This is what's happening in the leadership in Jerusalem. And devised a plot to have him killed. He persuaded Doris, one of Jonathan's best friends, to arrange to have Jonathan killed by bribing some robbers to do the job. The robbers came into the city as if they were going to worship, daggers hidden under their clothing. Mingling with the crowd, they were able to murder the high priest and escape safely. Since they were not caught and punished, the robbers, named Sakari for the short curved swords they carried, returned again and again to murder others in the city and in the temple itself, their own enemies and those whom they were paid to kill, not at all concerned about the sacrilege of such murders. Would you call that lawlessness according to Jewish standards? Absolutely. And this seems to be the reason God rejected Jerusalem. And it's, this, is, this is Josephus' interpretation. This seems to be the reason God rejected Jerusalem and its impure temple and brought the Romans upon the Jews, purging the city with fire and sending the Jews into slavery as a lesson to them. This is Josephus' comments here. Now, let's, let's read this other one. This is around AD 60, 69 AD, just as this stuff's really starting to get intense with the Romans. 
Within Jerusalem, the Galileans, whom John allowed to do whatever they wanted because of their loyalty to him, were running amok. Their urge to plunder was insatiable. Murder and rape were their common entertainments. They devoured their spoils and turned to feminine wantonness, decking their hair, dressing in women's clothing, painting their eyes. Not only did they look like women, they indulged in homosexuality and defiled the whole city. The city called Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, continuing to kill like men. They're dressing like women, but they're killing like, like men is what he's saying. The Idumeans the who still remained in the city rebelled against John, killing many of the zealots and driving the remainder into the royal palace where John lived and stored his booty. From there, the zealots were chased into the temple. The zealots who had been dispersed throughout the city joined the others in the temple and prepared to attack both the Idumeans and the citizens of the city. Lawlessness between Jews. and It's crazy, guys. When you're reading... When you're reading some of the accounts of Josephus, it's filled with, I mean, I can multiply these kinds of stories over and over. It's a pretty, it's a pretty substantial work. And um, so anyway, just read this quote from Matthew 12. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with which generation? This wicked generation. What Jesus is saying is that he came in as the true Messiah and cleaned house, driving out demons out of the nation. They reject him. He leaves. The house has been swept in order. And now all those demons, they come back into the land and you have the, all the craziness leading up to 70 A.D. Okay, that's what he's saying. Okay, Matthew 24, 9. And you will be hated by all nations for my sake. Now here, what does he mean? Let's look at the parallels. And you will be hated by all, all for my sake. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Paul, was he persecuted by Jews or Gentiles? Both. In a pretty severe way. So the book of Acts tells the story of the apostles and early church being severely persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. Luke 21, 8, but not a hair of your hair will perish. This seems to be a, uh, some kind of rendering possibly of Matthew 10, 30. Again, referring to Matthew 10 clearly being in a first century context. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end, here's the telos, will be saved. It's not necessarily the end of the age, but the one who endures to the end through the telos will be saved. Now, Luke interprets this by your endurance, you will gain your lives. I like the NIV by standing firm, you will gain life. So what he's it's the sense of by standing firm to the prize. In other words, you don't give up to the end of your race. You hold on even unto death is what he's saying to the telos. But then you'll be you'll gain life in the resurrection. Okay. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He who is faithful to Jesus unto death shall gain life in the resurrection at the end of the age. So here's uh, Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the telos to the end, the confidence we had at first, referring to the end of his life. He's holding on to the faith as much as he did towards at the beginning. 
So, so clearly, telos there is, is, is uh, referring to the end of somebody's race, to holding on unto death. Then Matthew 23, 10, 23, um, see discussion of Daniel 9 in session 1. Uh, where is it? Dan, uh, 11. Yeah, he says, Matthew 10, 23 adds, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is a tough verse. If you don't work, do the homework in Daniel 26 and 27. That's why we went through all of that. People always get thrown off by this because they want to say, what does it mean they're not going to finish going through the towns of Israel before Jesus comes back? Because it's 2,000 years. But if you understand that in Matthew and Daniel 9, 26, that the translation there should probably be that, that after he's cut off, he, being the Messiah, will come with the armies to destroy the city, then you know that Jesus is just saying that you're not going to finish going through all the towns of Jerusalem until Daniel 9.26 happens. Okay? And that's what happened. They're, they're, they're still preaching the gospel. And then, and then the reason that's significant is because what happened in AD 70, all the Jews were dispersed out of the land by the Romans. They were all taken. Those who survived were taken captive. Okay? And so does that make sense? And by the word, the, way, the word there, uh, perichomai, perichomai or something, it's the same word used in the, the Septuagint for when he, when the, the king, through by, with the king who is coming. It's not parousia. Now, it's a generic word for comes. And sometimes in the New Testament, it is referred in context to some aspect of Jesus coming at the end of the age in a parable or different things. But it's a generic word, so it can have a broad application of meaning. If they wanted to be absolutely, if Jesus wanted to be absolutely clear that he's referring to the second coming, he would have used parousia for sure. So that's why, you know, he's, uh, he's just saying, you're not going to finish going through Israel before Daniel 9.26 happens. So, all right, guys, we're all, this is for the missions movement. Me, having been involved in the missions movement myself, this is a big tweaker, sacred cow, but we rally the troops around this verse. But you know what? I've been stirred by this verse, but I think it means something that what I, that what I thought when that it was meant for, or that it thought that it, was, that it meant by the things that I heard. Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the telos will come. Then the outcome will come. Now, let's look at this word for kingdom, the whole world, as a testimony to all nations. It's significant to know that the word here is oikumene, not cosmos. Cosmos means the universal world. We're all, you know, it means everywhere. He said to them, go into all the world, cosmos, to preach the good news of all creation because he's making a covenant with the many nations scattered throughout the whole universe. He wants all creation. Okay, so the focus on all creation and cosmos means the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay, here the word oikumene, uh, here's the strong concordance. It can mean earth, the world, the empire, the entire Roman world, or people, humankind. So, um, uh, let's look uh, another, uh, let's see what, I'm not sure uh, what source I'm getting this from. It's one of the um, lexicons, but the, it says that this can, the King's, King James translated, rates it, rates it as world 14 times, 14 times in earth once, but it means it could be replied to the inhabited earth, 
the portion of the earth inhabited by the Greeks, in distinction from the lands of the barbarians. Remember, that's what the Romans were known for. They wanted to bring people into civilized Rome. So they considered everybody outside of the empire barbarians. And we have civilization. We have governance. And so we are, that's, that's the, that we are the real, uh, the real world. It's the Roman world. It's, 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 it's a word used to distinguish the Roman Empire in contrast to the barbarians outside of the empire, like the Germans and the, Visigoth, the, the Vandals and all those guys. The whole inhabited earth, the inhabitants of the earth. So it, it can mean the whole inhabited earth, wherever men are. But clearly, it's also used in the New Testament and in other, other usages at the time, outside of the Bible, for the Roman Empire. Okay? Now, in the, in the context here, Jesus, in the parallels, he's, it's still a first century context. So I want to say, in light of the first century context of the parallels, let's look at a viable alternative, which is a perfectly legitimate translation. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole empire as a testimony to all the nations within that empire. And then the outcome, of I, it could mean, if it means telos, it means in the sense of conclusion. It could mean telos in the sense of conclusion. And then the temple will conclude, like it'll end. Or it could mean the outcome. It has a broad range of meaning. But he, he's saying, then the end of the temple will come. Then the outcome. If it's, out, if it's in the sense of outcome, then it means the out, then the outcome of the, resur- of the insurrections will come. In other words, once this gospel has been preached to the nations throughout the empire, then the outcome of those insurrections, i.e. the temple of destruction, that's when it's about to come. That's when you know it's coming near. Other senses, when you see, when the gospel has been preached throughout the nations of, of the throughout the, the various ethnic groups, the ethnos in the empire, because the Roman Empire, like Eric was highlighting, covered many different people groups of different different places, Arabs and, and many others. And so, what he could be saying here is, this gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole empire. If he wanted it to be absolutely clear, it, cosmos, like he used it in Mark. It's, it's absolutely clear what he means there. But here, it could mean the inhabited, the whole entire inhabited world or empire. And in context, in light of the parallels, I think, in my opinion, the context supports empire, actually. Because, there, because we don't want to brush away the signs leading up to the temple's destruction because that was the initial question they asked. So Jesus is actually giving them signs for that. Are we tracking? Okay, now d- test this out on your own. But this is where I've, I've been chewing on this myself and this is where i'm starting to land so he's saying then the this gospel will be preached throughout the empire to all these ethnos and then either the 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 temple will conclude the conclusion of the temple or the outcome of those resurrections or here we go again the outcome of those insurrections i know we're talking about now let's look at now look at this this is the apostle paul towards the end of his ministry here So from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, this is northwest of Macedonia. <clears throat> I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. That's the, that, you're starting to push the northern parts of the empire there. Now there is no more place for me to work in these regions? Huh. He, some, so the gospel's taken root among the ethnos in those regions, is what he's saying, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And since I have been, go, been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain, Spain being the farther part of the empire there. And so 
So all, I think all he's saying here is that this gospel is going to be, be shared with the, some of the ethnos in the empire before the temple. And actually, what's interesting is that Peter and Paul were both executed by Nero just a few years before the temple's destruction. So do you guys, are you tracking with me here? Guys, we, this is where I'm starting to land. Test it out. But I'm saying, for me, as I'm reading through Mark and Luke and comparing it, the context is still uh, the first century, clearly, and in my mind, clear in my mind, whether it's clear in your mind, I don't know, it's clear in my mind. And because of that, you know, I, I want, if, if that's the case, I want Jesus to destroy my sacred cow for the sake of understanding what the scriptures teach, okay? That doesn't mean that because some of these events applied to, to the first century doesn't mean that it's not going to be intense at the end. Come on, look at all those passages we read. It's going to be the most intense time the earth has ever known. We just want to know what Jesus is actually saying so that we can have a clear grasp of the full picture. So let's brush away these first century signs as futurists who are really intense about the end of the age. Okay? <clears throat> but let's not be like preterists and just start taking passages that clearly refer to the end of the age and, and spiritualizing them or symbolizing them so that they don't mean what they say anymore. <clears throat> now, here's come the, the abomination of desolation. Here we go. Remember, Daniel 9 talks about it, and Daniel 12. We often assume they're the same. We often assume they're the same, but they're not the same. They're not the same. <clears throat> Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, whose question was that? Was that? Who asked that earlier? Jake. Oh, he's not here. Okay. Jake, if you're listening to the recording, um, we're coming to your question. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, where? Daniel 9, 26 through 27. That's why we went through all of that stuff. <laughs> With the LX, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text and all of that stuff. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Now, remember, uh, the, the Greek here is actually in, in tupo hagio, which means in, in a holy place. Let the reader understand. And remember, it's the holy. Remember, we saw that the word there in the Septuagint was holy. The holy. There's lots of holy things in relationship to Israel. There's a holy land. There's a holy people. There's a holy temple. There's a holy city, holy hill. See what I'm saying? So we have to ask, which one is it? Um, Mark 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he or it ought not. Now, the, the, Greek, the abomination is a... Is a uh, it's a masculine noun, and where he, it's a, uh, all right, how does it, no, excuse me, the abomination of desolation is a neuter, you know, genderless noun in the Greek. He is actually, it's a masculine. So Mark is giving you a clue that he's, he's referring that to the prince who is to come with the armies in Daniel 9.20, I think. I think he's saying, he's interpreting the abomination of desolation in light of Daniel 9.26-27, that he's going to come and destroy the temple. The Messiah will come destroy the temple and the sanctuary with the prince who is to come. The prince being the one who's leading the armies, um, the abominable armies. Luke 21, 20. Now, see, here we go. Luke's going to give interpretation. If you're a Gentile, what in the world does the abomination of desolation mean? But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. So, here Luke gives us clarity about what Jesus is saying. 
This phrase may have seemed obscure and a little cryptic for Gentile readers, so he seems to draw out the meaning with a more dynamically equivalent rendering. Okay, number one, abomination equals Gentile armies led by Titus, led by that ruler, given to idolatry, you know, pagan Gentile armies, two, in a holy place. Uh, Mark says where it does not belong, in a holy place where it does not belong. Okay, so Jerusalem and its surrounding environs, i.e. the holy city, the holy land. When you see Gentile armies surrounding, surrounding this holy place, this holy area, number three, then desolation. Then you know that its desolation is near. The desolation of what? What does he mean? The abomination of desolation. What does that mean? Desolation means the desolation of Jerusalem, because Luke mentions that. In Luke 21, 10, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by uh, by armies. So so we've got when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near because that's what God prophesied to Daniel, wasn't it? When will Jerusalem's desolation, when will it no longer be empty? He says it's going to be 70 times 7. I'm multiplying. I'm multiplying the punishments. And so that's why Daniel is saying, oh my goodness, you're telling me that the temple's going to be destroyed again? I'm grieving the destruction of it the first time. It's going to be rebuilt and then destroyed again? And he says, yes, so that the Gentiles can participate in the Jubilee too. That's what he's saying. I think. Test it out. Jesus is the, the leader and he, he leads us into truth. So. So as we saw in part one, this is prophesied in Daniel 9, and it comes out clearly in the LXX, the Septuagint, and it's also a viable translation in the Hebrew. So we went through all of that just so we have confidence when we get to this point. Questions? We tracking? Now, <clears throat> question, often in Scripture, an abomination represents an idol or an image of a false god. For example, Jeremiah 20, 32, 34. So then here's the question, and clearly it's, it's Gentile armies coming against Jerusalem uh, in Daniel nine twenty six, how then does Luke how then does Luke apply this to the Roman armies? Well, this is this is something that really hit me um, as I was researching on this. Let's look at this quotations from Josephus. We need to read through these so we get a clear grasp of what what's going on. Pontius Pilate, the procurator procurator of Judea, we know that guy, um, the guy that crucified Jesus. He moved his army from Caesarea to winter quarters in Jerusalem where he planned to abolish the Jewish laws. Former procurators had always had their armies enter the city accompanied by flags, carrying no pictures of men out of respect for the Jewish laws forbidding images. But Pilate's flags bearing Caesar's likeness as a false god, false image, was secretly erected throughout Jerusalem during the night. As soon as the flags were discovered, so these are the Roman legions, they carried flags with banners on them, and they had images on them that the Jews considered idolatrous. This is interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> he refu- uh, the, when, when the flags were discovered, crowds of Jews traveled to Caesarea to demand Pilate to remove them. They felt passionate about this. This wasn't just like, oh, it's not a real idol because it's on a flag or it's an image. It was a big deal. He refused, feeling it would be a dishonor to Caesar if he were to comply with the Jews and take the flags down. The crowd continued to petition Pilate for five days. On the sixth day, Pilate concealed soldiers in the area of his judgment seat, 
And when the crowd came to petition him again, they were surrounded and threatened with immediate death unless they abandoned their cause and returned home. The Jews threw themselves to the ground, bared their necks to the soldiers' weapons, and said they would willingly die before abandoning their laws. For these banners and flags with these idolatrous images carried by the Roman armies to be in the city, it would be in their minds breaking the law of Moses. Pilate, impressed by their determination and courage, ordered the flags returned to Caesarea. Okay, let's keep going. On Tiberius' orders, Vitellius prepared to go to war with Aretas. His army, consisting of two legions of foot soldiers and horsemen, began to advance toward Petra, passing through Ptolemaeus in Judea on their way. As they passed through Judea, the Jewish leaders met Vitellius and asked him not to cross their land since the Roman flags being carried by the armies bore many images on them. They did not want these flags to even enter into Jerusalem and the land because it would defile it. This is, this is, this is pretty intense. Okay, hearing the hated king Herod the Great was dying, two well-respected Jewish educators Judas and Matthias urged their students to pull down the golden eagle. So we have a golden eagle. This was on the standards of many Roman flags and and banners. Herod had erected over the temple gate in defiance of the Jewish law about images. They warned the students they would probably die in the attempt, but that it would be a worthy and long-remembered death in the middle of the day in front of the crowd in the temple. Students climbed the temple gate, pulled down the golden eagle, and cut it to pieces with axes. They were willing to die for this. This was not a light thing. Now, here is the, the a couple of the kickers here. Now, as Titus was upon his march into the enemy's country, the auxiliaries that were sent by the kings marched first, having all the other auxiliaries with them, after whom followed those that were to prepare the roads and measure out the camps. Oh, sorry. This is, this, this is actually just to, to show that the in, in, in 48 there, this isn't a verse. This is just uh, the, the category the category in Josephus 48 there. All these came before the engines, and after these engines followed the tribunes and the leaders of the cohorts with their select bodies. After these came the ensigns with the eagle. So just showing that that when they were carrying their flags, they had this idolatrous image of the eagle, which the Jews in previous attempts, or in, 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 this, in the previous story, the eagle was an image that they were willing to give their life for because uh, it, to see destroyed because it was that big a deal. Now look, look at this. Once the temple was destroyed, look what happened. Now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city and upon the burning of the holy house itself and of the buildings around about it, they brought their ensigns, they brought their banners and flags to the temple, set them over against its eastern gate, and there they offered sacrifices to them. They sacrificed to their own flags in worship of this pagan, idolatrous, beastly empire. And there they did make Titus emperor with the greatest, claiming that this Gentile leader who had just destroyed their city was the, was the real king of Jerusalem, basically. Now here's this quotation from Tertullian. He gives witness to it, the early church father. The camp religion of Romans is all through a worship of the standards, a setting of the standards above all gods. So that gives you an idea of how Luke says the, how this application of the armies being idolatrous it gives a little more meat to it. Like this, this was a wave of abominations entering the nation that, dis- that ultimately destroyed it and laid the city waste and made it desolate. So note that Matthew is not directing readers to Daniel 12. That's why we pointed that out, that Daniel 12 
that the question after Daniel 9, 26 to 27, what about the last three and a half years? That's why he comes with it in Daniel 12, clearly in context of the end of the age. Note that Matthew is not directing readers to Daniel 12, which clearly refers to the end of the age. Daniel 12 teaches clearly that the end of the age, there will be another abomination of desolation. Daniel 11 and many other Old Testament passages show that this will also involve Jerusalem being surrounded by idolatrous armies. I want us to even broaden the possibilities in our minds of what the abomination of desolation is, even at the end of the, the age. Most of us picture it as there's, there's going to just be an idol in there. But the reality is that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by idolatrous armies in the same way, probably bearing Islamic symbols, which are just as idolatry. Like the crescent, do you realize that's a symbol of ancient, idol, ancient idolatry that's been adopted and incorporated into Islam, the crescent moon? Isn't that interesting? That is just as idolatrous in God's sight as, as these Roman standards. Okay, <clears throat> so look at this. This is what's going to happen. Daniel 11 says, At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. The king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. What's that? That's Israel. If he's invading the beautiful land, what does that imply? That there's resistance to him initially. It's like similar to what happened in, in the first century. There's initial resistance there. It's not just a passive kind of thing. Many countries will fall. Um, now look at this, verse 45. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas, that's between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. That, this is the second coming. He will come to his end. No one will help him. So it's a, it's, a, it's the similar situation. The Antichrist armies are coming in and surrounding Jerusalem. And that's why I, I did that little thing. I made sure we did a, a That set up can also have different senses. Appointed, given over to. It could just mean that um, we, want to, we want again, we want to have two different pictures painted in our mind. If it is kind of like Antiochus Epiphanes kind of thing, or if it's the army surrounding Jerusalem, we have a grid for both either way. We have a grid for both either way. Antiochus as well as tied the 8070, those are both types. Now let's keep pressing on here. Matthew 24, 16. And then let those then, when they see these armies invading Jerusalem, then let those who are in who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This makes a lot more sense when you the reason is because the armies are about to entrap the people of that area, in that area. And they won't be able to get out once the, the armies surround the area because not much time before they get trapped in by the invading armies. The siege began just after Passover when multitudes were coming to Jerusalem for the feast. Titus led, let them into the city but would not let them out. This, this put extra strain on the food supplies. The, this happened right at the Passover. All these pilgrims come into the city and Titus wouldn't let them out and multitudes were massacred. It was almost like as if God was gathering the whole nation or something for the judgment. It's scary. <clears throat> 15. Now, interestingly, Eusebius, the early church historian from the uh, 3rd and 4th century, he, he, here's verb, word for word what he says. But the people of the church in Jerusalem had been communicated by revelation. Was it a dream, a vision, an angel? Who knows? Vouchsa vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. That's, on the out, that's in the Decapolis there. And when those that believed in Christ had come there from Jerusalem, 
Then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, James killed all these other guys. The judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. This is uh, another commentary, M.S. Mills. Eusebius, the 4th century Jewish historian, to whom we are indebted for much of our record of the happenings in the early church, reports that the Jerusalem church took Jesus' prophecy literally, for according to him, the Jewish Christians, remembering Jesus' warning, before the war of A.D. 66-73, through 73, fled to Pella, a city of the Decapolis, east of the Jordan, and thus outside the area of conflict. Eusebius says every Christian fled Jerusalem. Not a single Christian was destroyed in that siege. According to Josephus, uh, or according to Eusebius here, yeah, they took it serious. Now, what's interesting here is that the, a lot of the people couldn't get out even before Titus surrounded the the city. A lot of the Jews could not leave the city because the zealots wouldn't let them leave. On pain of death, they they left because they they saw them as traitors. So even earlier earlier on. From both sides, from both sides, they were trapped in the city. And that stuff started happening even several years, you know, a long time. I don't know exactly when, but long before 70 AD. And so the fact, what's interesting is that the first legion of armies to surround Jerusalem in an attempt to squelch the rebellion was the 12th legion commanded by Cestius, the president of Syria. This was in AD 66. If Eusebius' account is accurate, then the believers in Jerusalem apparently interpreted this as the first wave of the abomination, the armies that would eventually desolate Jerusalem. See what I'm saying? So they fled. They fled. 